invite you to go with me to the book of Luke this morning. We're going to be in chapter 10. We're going to be in chapter 10, starting with verse 25. As the ushers continue collecting the offering, we're going to go ahead and jump into our scripture text this morning, which is probably pretty familiar. And so if you've heard this story before, I'm going to invite you to, to do something a little bit. Just close your eyes and listen to it and see if something new happens. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of us know about the Good Samaritan. Many of us have heard sermons about the Good Samaritan. But I invite you, if this is a familiar text to you, that you try to hear it in a new way. And if you've never heard it before, if this is new to you, all of it will be on the screen here behind me. So I'm going to read it. And if you want to read and follow along, you are welcome to do that. All right? Luke chapter 10. Here we go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. And then a priest happened to be going down that same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is the money, two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after them, look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say... Thanks be to God. We are beginning a new series today that will take us over the next four weeks. It's called The Art of Neighboring. This idea of of what is a neighbor? How do we act like a neighbor? Who are our neighbors? Today we will be sitting with that idea. Who is our neighbor? What What does it mean when we say that we are a neighbor and we are journeying alongside others in life? We're going to do this for four weeks, all the way until the Sunday after Martin Luther King weekend. So the 27th will be the last day in this series. And that'll be an exciting day where we look at where we believe God is in the midst of our planning for the year. As we get excited and and cast some vision for what we feel like 2019 is going to be like and the things that we are excited about. And so we hope you will journey with us through this. We hope that you'll be a part of it. Um, I just want to give a quick thanks to all the affirmation I heard from last week. Um, 
I don't know if you know this or not, but the district superintendent was here, you know, being in worship with us, and she's never heard me preach before. And if you weren't here, I played Elton John on the piano. And I thought, you know, I probably should scrap that since, you know, I'm, you know, boss is here. You know, I just thought I was going to do something a little bit different. And so for all the affirmation, thank you. You made me feel a lot better. It's on the podcast if you want to go check it out. We do, if you're new with us, we do have a podcast um, stream. It's on iTunes and all the other places you can find podcasts if you just search Dothaway United Methodist Church. But let's go back to this scripture. Will you pray with me as we begin? Lord, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I want to tell you a parable that I read out of a book called The Orthodox Heretic. And it's a good parable. There's lots of parables. There's a book full of parables. And we're going to talk more about what parables are in a second. But first, I want to tell you one. So there was a monk. And he was very faithful in his monastery. And he was the leader of the worship services. And he had a pet cat. And he had this pet cat that would sometimes be disruptive during worship. He would jump up on the monk. He would be running around the sanctuary. Sometimes he'd get a bunch of paws on the piano. And so he decided he was going to tie up the cat around the tree during worship just so that it wouldn't be disruptive during the worship service. And they did this pretty much every week um, for years, for years and years. They, they would just tie up the cat during worship, and then the cat would be free to roam around. Well, one day the monk died, and the disciples of that monk, and then the other people who were in that um, in that monastery, they, they continued on the practice of tying up the cat onto the tree. And then one day, the cat died. So they decided to go buy another cat so they could tie it to the tree during worship, because that's what you do. During worship, you tie cats to trees. And then that kept on going on for, for years and years. They would they'd tie a cat to the tree, and then the cat would die, and then they would buy another cat and they would tie it to the tree because you have to have a cat tied to the tree during worship. It's, it, that's what we've always known. We've always done it like that. That's way we've always done it. And then one day, the tree fell. And I'm like, oh, we have to plant another tree because we have to have a tree to be able to tie a cat to. So they went and tied, they went and got another tree, they planted it, and then they got the cat and they tied it to the tree so they could have worship on and on and on and on until the end of time. That's the story. That's it. That's how it goes. There's a more modern version of that that goes something like this. It's, it's, there was a megachurch, and every week they asked people to turn their cell phones off when worship started. And they would ask us every week, every week, so people, please turn your cell phones off. And then after a couple of years, they realized that there were some older people in the congregation who don't have cell phones. So they gave them cell phones so they could turn them off whenever the worship service started so that they could continue to practice with everyone else too. And it went on, on and on and on until the end of time. These are parables. They're stories that are kind of silly that don't make sense. But parables carry deep truth and communicate knowledge and truth in ways that often we don't find in other forms of life. I love parables because they critique popular wisdom. They question normative behavior. It's normative for no other reason than just because it's normative. See, we, we know that truth has multiple iterations. It comes in all various forms to be able to experience truth. Parables offer us a depth to be able to reason and think about life's fascinations, life's complications. It transcends basic facts and figures and memorization. They give us a deeper way to learn and experience the world, different from some of our school learning, 
where we just memorize information and then regurgitate that information on a test to make sure we get a good grade, right? That's kind of our structure of learning is mostly read something, memorize it, so you can say it back at some other point. And I'm thankful for that. I am. That is an important way to learn. There are doctors who need to learn that way because I want them to know about my body in case they have to do some operation. They memorize everything. There are lawyers who need to know the law so they can defend people and so that they can do their job. They need to know all the things. There's importance in learning and memorizing things. But then there's another way of learning and knowing and thinking um, that is another form of experience, right? There's a a depth to truth. Just memorizing things won't get you to the questions like, well, what should I do with my body now that it's repaired? How should I live my life? It doesn't ask questions like, what is justice? And who should we be defending? And what does it mean to need to, to work for justice? You can't memorize those facts. Those are truths that have to be sought out, that have to be wrestled with. And parables give us the opportunity to do that. They give us a forum to think about these things and to have these conversations. It's the type of conversation and the type of knowledge that that draws us into meaning itself. What is meaning? What do things matter? Why are we here? What are we doing? Peter Rollins describes parables as they, they disrupt your thinking. Everything you think is good and moral and right, a parable tends to take that and turn it on its head. There are often three parts to a parable. There don't have to be, but typically there uh, there are three parts to a parable. There's the position that is normal, the position that most of us take for granted. That is how a parable normally begins. It starts with some normative behavior. All right, so there is this thing. So in our first, in the parable I just told a second ago, Tying a cat to a tree because it's being disruptive is not that unnormal, right? It's not like whenever we have a small group at our house, we put our dogs outside because they'll be disruptive. That's pretty normal behavior. Well, there's a second part to a parable that introduces contrast, tension. It brings a, a counterintuitive way to combat the normal way of being. So in that, in that, they continued tying the cat to the tree even though it didn't make any sense. They kept on doing it. And the last part of a parable is that it does one of two things. It either affirms that the contrasting behavior is what we should be doing, or it uses the contrasting behavior to show that the normal behavior is odd and strange and needs to be considered. So in, that thir- in, that, in the cat parable, the normal behavior became just tying things to trees, tying cats to trees, because that's what we do. And it draws us into this idea of thinking, we just do things because we've always done them, but then when we're given the reason why we did it, we question, well, should we continue doing it, right? They, they get to the depth of life. They help us consider reality in new ways. That's why I love parables. That's why I love being able to talk in stories and tell stories because I can give you facts and figures. I can give you, you know, information about the scripture. And I think that's part of our learning. But the thing I hope to do is to draw you into questions, is to draw you into engaging your faith. I think that's what our text for us does today. It's a parable. And this parable follows the pretty similar pattern to what we just laid out. In our story, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and tries to test his knowledge of the law. See, the law for the Israelites and for Jewish people was not only like the religious law. So we have our religious kind of understandings and rules as Christians, right? We we know the, the good moral behavior that Jesus calls us to do. But for the Israelites, the law was also the civic rules also. 
So we have this idea, we separate church and state, but for them, they are mutually linked together. And so whatever the religious law was, was also the civic law. And so this lawyer would be like one of our lawyers today, like a, just like a re- regular person who studies the law, but is also a religious leader. All right, so this expert on the law is coming to test Jesus. Because Jesus, they call him rabbi, teacher, which means he is an expert in the law also. And so they're gonna have this dialogue. And he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And eternal life is a little bit different for the Jewish people in the first century than it is for us as Christians today. The ideas of eternal life have developed, particularly from texts in the New Testament, that those in the Old Testament did not have. And so for them, eternal life was about how do I make an impact on the world to where I'm connected to the earth beyond my own life? How do I transcend my own time here on earth to make an impact and and exist beyond this self? And Jesus asked him, well, what is written in the law? I say this a lot, but Jesus doesn't always respond with direct answers. He's always either, you ask him a question, he asks you a question. You ask him a question, he tells a story. It kind of reminds me, like when my dad, this this engagement, when I was in, in school and I was like, I had trouble with math. I was not the best mathematician, still am not. And I'd ask my dad, um, hey, dad, what does this math problem mean? Like, how do I do this? And he'd say, well, what do you think it means? Because he wants me to work it out on my own. I found out later, dad's not very good at math either. (laughs) He was just trying to get out of hell from me. But Jesus wants this lawyer to engage himself and is trying to guide the conversation, not giving a direct answer, but helping us experience truth beyond just you know, here's the answer, go on your way. He wants us to, to really think about things. And so the, the lawyer says to love your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The first part of that is called the Shema. The Shema is found in the Old Testament in the Torah, the beginning of the Bible. And it is the prayer and it is what a Jewish people will pray every morning and every night, even still today. Most Jews will still pray the Shema twice a day. Hear, O Israel, I am the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And ultimately, that end part just means all of yourself. Love the Lord your God with everything you are. And then he adds in a part from Leviticus where he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. He puts the two together because the Jewish people understood that to love God was to love others and to love others was to love God. But he replied that way and Jesus said, that's good, go and do that. But the lawyer isn't satisfied. I think he's trying to trap Jesus a little bit. Maybe engage Jesus and make things questionable because he asked, well, well, I'm okay with that part. I get the love the Lord part. Who is my neighbor? That's what he asked him. He says, who is my neighbor? And there is this debate going on amongst Jewish leaders about who the people are you're supposed to love fully. Are they the Jewish people who are following the law and who are clean and who are observing all the mitzvahs and all the laws that that they have to, or is it just all Jewish people in general, even those who are unclean, all right? He's trying to get Jesus to, you know, weigh in on the case. Is Is it this group of Jews or is it this group of all Jews? And Jesus answers with this very interesting, compelling parable, a very interesting story. He sets up normal behavior. So he says, all right, there's a man on the side of the road who's been beaten and he's left for dead. And then a priest and a Levite walk by and they leave him there. So you think a man's been hurt. And in our 21st century years, we hear, oh, a pastor is going by. That's great. He's going to help, but he doesn't. He walks on by. 
And then it says that a Levite walks by. And you're like, oh, wow, that's like a super pastor, right? So Levites are like, they're the, they're the, the cream of the crop when it comes to religious orders. And so it'd be like a, a pastor walks by and then the bishop walks by, right? And so like, this is big deal. He's gonna, and he doesn't help either. He keeps on walking by. And then a Samaritan walks by and offers aid and cares for this person and takes them, you know, he cleans his wounds and he takes them to an inn and he pays for his treatment and he pays for his stay. And as, as we think about it, you know, like that has become so normal that that seems like the good thing, the right thing, that the Samaritan's behavior is the normal behavior. But if you were listening to this parable, that would not be the case. According to the law, which is what the lawyer is asking about, right? He's asking about how to interpret the law. According to the law, what the priest and the Levite did was completely acceptable, completely normal, because the man was bleeding, and if you were to touch a bleeding person, you were to become unclean. Cleanliness is a really big thing for the ancient Jewish people. You have to go through ritual purity in order to become clean again and have animals sacrificed so that you can be made right with God. And so if you go and engage with a bleeding person... If you go and, and, and touch this person, you then will become unclean. So according to the law, what the Levite and the priest did was normal. That was the right thing. So that is the setting up the normal behavior. And then Jesus introduces a really distasteful character into the story. Jews and Samaritans are like arch enemies. They're like not BFFs. It would be like if during like the, the Anglo-French wars the wars between Britain and France that have happened plenty of times throughout history. It would be like if you were hanging out with a group of British people and you were telling this story. And you're like, hey, there was this British pastor and he was walking by the side of the road and he was just following the law. He was doing good things. And then there was this bishop and he was following the law and he was doing good things. And then there's this Frenchman. He broke the law. That'd be kind of like that damage because you'd be like, boo, right? So when they hear Samaritan, they're like, he said, a Samaritan shows up. And the Jewish people listening are like, boo, Samaritan. And he says, a Samaritan shows up, who's our enemy, and he breaks our laws. And he goes over and he touches this person. And he cleans his wounds. And he bandages his mouth. And he puts him on his donkey. And he takes him to the inn. And he uses his money to pay for this stranger's care that he doesn't even know. And who's actually part of the people who he's supposed to hate. He sets up a very contrasting way of being when compared to what is normal. And that's where Jesus ends the story. He basically is saying, Jesus is communicating that their hated enemy was actually the person in the right and their own laws and rules prevented people from doing what was good. And so when the story is over, he doesn't say that though. He doesn't, like, he doesn't explain the parable. He says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think, do you think was a neighbor? He asked him directly. He wants him to have to confront his own life, to confront his own normal behavior, to confront his own laws, and have to answer that question in light of the story he just told. He's basically saying, are the people who you follow who set up these rules, are they right? Or is the person who broke those rules, who is your enemy, is, is, is he right? And all the lawyer could say, the lawyer couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He just said, the one who showed mercy. Kind of, I can imagine like begrudgingly saying that. The one who showed mercy. And he said, go and do likewise. He basically said, go and be like your enemy. Go and be like the person who broke the rules. Go and be the person who shows 
mercy. This is such a compelling text to me. I've read it plenty of times. I've preached on it plenty of times. Never have I preached on this text the same sermon. Let's sort of look at the Bible. It's just alive. God is speaking to us in new ways through it. When we hear it, it might be, mean something at this point in our life. And later on, it might be speaking a whole new truth to us. And so as, as I was meditating on this scripture, I realized something I hadn't realized before. There are actually two questions being asked in this text. Two very similar but distinct questions. I've never noticed it before, but as I was reading it, it kind of, it kind of caught my attention. The first question is the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? And that's normally how we read this text. It's normally what we sit with. We sit with this idea of asking, all right, who in the world is our neighbor? By telling about how this, this person was forgotten and left on the side of the road, Jesus is trying, maybe trying to tell us, you know, the forgotten people are, are our neighbors, the people who have been beaten down, the people who are left for dead, the people who are unseen, who are not helped. Love those people. Love the people who no one else is loving. Those are your neighbors. We should see the vulnerable, the overlooked, and recognize that they are our neighbors. You could also interpret this as Jesus is saying, suggesting that even your enemies are your neighbors because the Samaritan was the one who showed the love. And so, so Jesus might be even saying, you know, Jews and Samaritans, you might be enemies, but you should still love each other. In the modern sense, we could hear that and it might mean to us, you know, that the, the people who we like the least are actually also our neighbors. That coworker that causes drama all the time, they are our neighbor. That teacher who is not always super nice to us because we don't always pay attention in class, but we still make A's, right? That, that person is still our neighbor too. And we should, for Democrats, the right-wing fundamentalists are your neighbors. For Republicans, the left-leaning liberals are your neighbors, The people you disagree with are also your neighbor. And there's deep truth in that. There's deep truth in trying to see beyond ourselves and recognize that even those who we have issues with, we are still called to love. That's a hard word. It's a good word, but it's difficult to internalize that, to come to grips that we should love those who are so different from us. It's hard to sit with, and I could totally end the sermon there and just talk about that some more, because that is a good word, and it's a place where we could rest the rest of the day. But there's a second question in this story. At the very end, when Jesus finishes the parable, he finishes the story, looks at the man, and he asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? The distinction might sound subtle, but I think it matters, and it's more than just semantics. It's more than just rewording the question, same question in a different way. You see, the first question is about how we see others. It's about how we recognize other people's worth. It's about how we look at people who might not, we think are our neighbor, and we see them now as being our neighbor. But Jesus' question makes us look at ourselves and ask, are we being a neighbor? He asks, which of these three was a neighbor? Which of these people behaved the way a neighbor should Jesus' question to the lawyer makes us not ask, are they my neighbor, but am I their neighbor? Am I acting like a neighbor to them, to those? I think it is important for us to see those around us as worth, with love, but we also have to ask ourselves, are we being that to them? The normative behavior in life assumes to be a good neighbor, you follow the rules, You maintain status quo. 
You stay in your lane. You don't rock the boat. You keep your music down. You wave at the people as you pass by and ask them how their kids are doing. But other than that, you know, that, that's about all it takes to be a good neighbor. But Jesus introduces a very controversial figure to embody neighborliness. He says, actually, the person who acts like the neighbor is the one who breaks the rules on behalf of mercy. The one who says, we're not going to just do things the way we've always done them because that's the way we're, we've been told to do them. The neighbor is the person who asks, why do we have a cat tied to a tree? Who looks at the world not as it is, but as it could be. Who looks at our society and says, what am I offering that shows mercy and love to those who are vulnerable and unseen? Jesus doesn't just ask, hey, look at your life and look at all the people around you and how do they affect you. He asked, how are you affecting the people around you? And so as we end this sermon, as we land this plane, I'm gonna ask both of, all of us both of those questions. Who in your life is your neighbor? Who are the people you struggle with being your neighbor? Are they your actual neighbors, the people who live beside you? Are they the people at work, in school? Are they family members who are difficult to get along with? And not only what can they do for you so that you like them more, but how are you being a neighbor to the world? What are you doing on behalf of others? The neighbor was the person who said, sure, there might be rules and there might be established normative behavior, but if it doesn't, if that behavior is not on behalf of the people in need, then I'm going to do something else. I'm going to take care of the lost. I'm going to look to giving aid to the lonely. I'm going to care for all the people that God cares for because God says everybody is our neighbor and everybody needs love. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about that. How do we serve our neighbors? What are we doing in our lives?